all of our families have conflict, and if you're like me, sometimes you have a conflict, and you're like, what did that happen for? Like, I cannot believe, this is when you look back on a conflict, and there's been an argument, and people have been mad at each other, and then you get past it, and you just stop if you're reflective at all, and you go, what were we arguing about? Why did that happen? Why did that make me so angry? Why did that bother me so much? Why were they so bothered sometimes by that thing? I mean, what's the deal? And there is, I think, the understanding that our families will have conflict. I think we all get that. But uh, we don't ever pause to think. I don't think we ever pause to think, where does the conflict come from? Now, we know the feeling of conflict, and we might say, well, that's the reason. Like, well, we were angry. That's why there was conflict. But I think we could all just kind of stop and pay attention, and we'd we'd be able to say, well, the conflict didn't come because I was angry. The anger came because conflict existed, right? And so that's not the reason for it. Uh, And we may blame the other person and say, well, the conflict is all their fault. And you might be right, but but conflict requires two people, you know. And, And so I think that it's really important if we're going to remove conflict from our families... Probably not all together. Let me not get your hopes up. It's not that good of a sermon. Uh, But if we're going to remove conflict at least a little bit, then we have to know where conflict comes from. And after, and this is what I, I think we can do in this sermon today by looking at this passage in Genesis 25, I think after we know where it comes from, we can actually see kind of the opposite thing and what we maybe can do in order to start to remove some of that conflict from our families. And and so today, I think that's our goal. I I want you to know where conflict comes from. I might be able to give you a hint. It's right here. Uh, And then I, I want to help us know kind of what's the opposite of that. While you're turning to Genesis chapter 25, if you're opening your Bibles or going onto your apps, uh, I, I want you to think about the situation in, in which this is written. Uh, this is the story of, of Abraham's line, and God has made these incredible promises to Abraham. We'll come back to that in a second. And he's going to mention Abraham here. And, and our story here is really about God fulfilling promises. But in the midst of that great story about God going the direction that he always said he was going to do, to go and doing the things that he always said he was going to do because he's faithful, in the midst of that, we see these brothers kind of mess up their family despite the work that God's doing. They mess up their family. And last week we talked about how Sins are stones that break our homes, but grace can overcome them. If you were here, hopefully you remembered that, especially with the cadence of sticks and stones will break my bones. I don't know if you caught that, but I hope that came out. Uh, And today, we're going to focus in on one characteristic, kind of wrapped up in two sins, jealousy and flippancy, and we're going to focus on that one characteristic because I think while, while sins break our homes, I think that this characteristic is the very thing that causes conflict in our lives. So I'll just tell it to you ahead of time, and then we'll, we'll look at it in the sermon. Me above we. 
I think that what causes conflict, and you're going to see it in this sermon in two ways, jealousy and flippancy, you're going to see that what causes conflict at the very heart of every conflict, and I've been thinking through this lens this week, trying to think about conflicts I've had in my family, and I think that I'm right. I think that this passage is going to, what we see in this passage is going to prove true, and that's that conflict is caused when we put me above we. So let me just dive into the story here in Genesis chapter 25, starting in verses 19 through 21. It says, Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan, Aram, and his sister, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. Now again, and we've said this in this series before, but it's something that I think is important in our society because it's forgotten, and that's this. Children are a blessing. Now, I understand that some people choose not to have children. That's fine. Uh, I under- I've told you many times in sermons that I was a guy who didn't feel any need to have a child uh, for my life to be complete or for our marriage to be whole. Uh, I really like Hazel, and I-, I actually say this to people, and they usually look at me like I'm- they're super offended. I love Hazel. I don't love being a parent. I love her. I do a great job of parenting because of my love for her, but the whole thing is is just okay as far as, you know, cleaning diapers and things like that. It's just an okay thing to do. Uh, and, and here's the deal. So that's okay. But when a child is on the way, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the circumstances are, we need to get back to a point where we remember that children are blessings and they are a reminder of the blessing as we saw in the first sermon in this series all the way back with Adam and Eve. They are a reminder of the blessing that family was meant to be when God created it. Family was meant to bless us with help and companionship and every time a child is born, it is a reminder that God has given us this wonderful gift called family. So that we could have companionship in a different way than we can have with anybody else. And we can have the help that we need to get through this life. And I think that kids can be a great reminder that we shouldn't put me over we. In fact, for a lot of people I know, it's the first time in their lives when they have a baby. It's the first time when they go, wait a minute, I'm not going to put me over we anymore because this thing is reliant upon me. And so what I, I just would say at the very beginning that when you forget that a child or your family in general is a blessing, a, a gift from God, even if that gift has become totally messed up by the sin in our world, when you forget that it was a blessing, a, a gift that God gave you by his great grace, then it is much harder not to put me above we because you don't look at it as a gift. You look at it as a problem or a nuisance or something that stands in the way of you having what you want. And so the inevitable thing that you're going to do is put me above we and it's going to cause conflict. And so right at just the beginning, here is a man who is like, man, my wife is not getting pregnant. I'm going to pray and ask God. It reminds us that families are a blessing. Now, the other part, and I already mentioned this, but let me mention it one more time because it's going to be very, very key at the end of this. It's going to be very, very key for what's on the back of this piece of paper right here, and that is that the mention of Abraham reminds us that at the heart of this passage, 
is the fulfillment of God's promises despite the family. And it is a story about God doing what God has promised to do, even if people aren't doing what they ought to do. But, pay attention to this now, God works, but at the same time, we see in this story that the decisions of the main characters, these brothers, matter. I think we go, well, God's grace, <laughs> whatever I do, I do, and God's grace, no big deal. It's again, not going to turn out any differently, but that's not what this story teaches. It says God will be faithful to his promises. God will do what God intends to do and has promised to do. However, your decisions matter. God may work in your family and do great things in your family and, and he may become a bigger part of your family and, and still you have the opportunity to mess it up. You do. And that's what this story says to us. Notice the words in that. Uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. Genesis 25, 22 through 23 says, The babies jostled each other within her and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be, notice this word, separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. One author said the will of the divine purpose is ultimately what counts. But again, these guys are going to mess up their family even though God's will and his way are going to happen. And notice that language will be separated. This family is going to be forever separated. And if you skip ahead in the story, you'll find that they're going to be separated to a point where the whole family is almost ruined and destroyed because of the decisions that these two men, these two babies who grow up to be men, will make. This word jostle gets us uh, it's kind of a picture of what's going to take place in their relationship, but uh, it's actually a word that suggests a violent, abnormal struggle. That's not a very fun pregnancy. Uh, the struggle is so abnormal, and all pregnancies are bad from what I can tell, but uh, the, the struggle inside of her is so bad that she goes to God and she's like, what is happening inside of me? What's going on? I mean, this is, this is over the top. This is not normal. And God gives an answer and says, look, here's the deal. The younger will serve the older and the younger will be, excuse me, the older will serve the younger, and the younger will, will be the ruler over the older one, which was abnormal for people at the time. Now, again, one more time, one more time. This answer is important, and we're going to come back to this, because this is not God saying this might happen. This is not God saying, hey, maybe this is going to turn out this way. This is not proverbial in nature, like, well, there's a good chance. I mean, th this is God saying, I'm telling you what is going to happen. These two babies that are inside of you are going to be born, and eventually there will be a separation between them that leads to multiple nations, and the older one will serve the younger one, while the younger will be stronger than the older one. This is not an idea. This is a guarantee from God. This is the way that it's going to happen. And the story continues. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out and his hand, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. 
Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And this last part is just so important, and it's going to factor into the next verse that we'll look at. Um, But it's something we've already said in this sermon series again, and it's important to say again. Individuals in your family are going to be different. You know this already. This is not news. I mean, every one of us is different than the person next to us, but every other person in our families, even if you're a twin, as it turns out, you, you happen to be different than the other twin. It's a crazy thing, isn't it? And here we have two twins, and they are different. They are vastly different in their interests and their styles and their looks and all of those things. And again, one of the things that makes life, a family, so difficult is that not everybody's like us. People think differently. They have different opinions about stuff. They vote differently. They just are different. And what we have a tendency to do, this is really important, what we have a tendency to do is we think that different is worse. And so then, because they are worse than us, we put me over we because my way is the better way. My way is the right way. My way is the good way. And if they would just be like me, then we could be equals, but they're not, so I'm going to put me over we. When we believe that different is worse then it's easier to put me over we and conflicts arise more quickly. Did you get that? And so we must, just the beginning, remember that the different is not worse. Different is different. That will help us not put me over we. Now these brothers uh, have serious level of dissension in their relationship. And it's, it's kind of hinted at right at the very beginning because in the famous part of the story, I mean, Jacob is right behind his brother coming out of the womb and he's grabbing his heel. And, uh, and it's, it's a premonition in some ways of what will take place in this story. Um, but it is an interesting paradox because they are twins who are as close as they can be in the womb. And yet they are going to be separated, like literally go to different places because they cannot stay in the same place anymore. And we'll see it's because they put me above we. We're going to see this, that it's because Jacob was jealous and Esau was flippant. And it continues in verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau but Rebekah loved Jacob. An author said this, divided parental favor accentuates this discord, anticipating the parental involvement later in the account that fuels the smoldering feud. And another author says, the competition is exasperated by their parents' favoritism. Now the word love there uh, in Hebrew, and I've, I've harped on this before, Hebrew, not a good language, just a bad language. Um, and so, like, when you have a vocab word in a Hebrew class, it can mean 37 things, you know? And it's like, well, which one do I pick? And, and so here, when we see love, love is probably not what it means. I know that's weird. Uh, it probably means something closer to affection. And so Isaac 
likes to eat meat, and Esau's a hunter, and so he's more affectionate towards Esau, while Rebekah is more affectionate to Jacob, who seemingly is a stay-at-home kind of guy, but the, the language of the text actually hints at him being kind of well-put-together preppy boy. And his mom likes that. He is a mama's boy. That's what it comes down to. And so the mom likes him better. Shows him affection. This is a big deal if you're a parent, especially one of the newer parents in our church, but even for you older parents. You cannot be affectionate to your kids. You cannot love your kids based on them being more like you or based on liking them better. Now, notice I didn't say that you can't like one more than the other. I don't know about that. I don't have two children. Someday I'll let you know if it's cool to like one more than the other. I don't know. Uh, Hazel will be probably my favorite always, but, uh, you know, uh, I'm just, uh, no, I, I just, uh, I don't know if you can like one more, uh, one kid more than the other. I don't know how all that works, but I do know this that your treatment and your affection towards one kid cannot be altered by whether or not you like them better or uh, you get along with them better or they have the same interests that you have or anything like that. In fact, as I've defined loved in the past, them above you is their good you pursue because of their value. There is, there is no reason that we should give affection to anybody based on whether or not we like them. The way that we love people should only be based, if we're Christians, upon our relationship with Jesus, and it should cause us to lower ourselves despite how we feel about people. And that should be no more true than it is in a child-parent relationship. I don't care if you like one kid more than the other. Uh, but it's really, really important that you treat them both with love and affection despite how you feel about them. Now, the, nowhere in the Bible are you going to say, hey, don't play favorites with your children. That's not a verse. But in the family that we're looking at in the book of Genesis, everybody in the patriarchal line, the fathers of the Jewish faith, even our faith in some ways, every single parent child relationship is wrapped around this concept of the dad playing a favorite or the mom playing a favorite with their kids. And I can't help but think, I cannot prove this to you, but I can't help but think that maybe God, as he divinely inspired the book of Genesis, wanted us to pay attention to this idea that it's not good to have a favorite child or it's not good to play favorites with your children. Because it affects and destroys, in a lot of ways, family line, the whole family line that we read about in the book of Genesis. In fact, a story that we'll look at not next week, but the week after of, of Joseph, I mean, it, it becomes really bad because of a dad's preferential treatment of his child. And, and so I just, look, I, I want you to know this, that, that if you're a parent who's raising kids and you're showing one more favor than the other one, then let me tell you what's going to happen. It's just obvious because I've lived. Both of them are going to try to put me over we more. One of them is going to vie, even if they're not around you, I mean, in their lives and the way they treat their spouses and the way they do their jobs, they're going to be vying for your affection and your love, and the other one's going to be fighting to maintain it because they've seen that it's based on something that their brother or sister did or did not do and what they did and did not do. And so you will produce children that put me over we always in your family because one will be fighting for attention and the other will be fighting to maintain the attention that they've always had, thinking that it is works-based. 
I'm very thankful God has not treated us that way. But too many people treat their children that way. And the story continues. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of the, notice this, red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. What a crazy, like that is boom. He was ready, man. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is, my, is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This section is indicative, illustrative of the character flaws that are in both men, that one is jealous and the other is flippant, that one lets jealousy rule his life and the other one lets flippancy rule his life. But before I look at those two things and both of their character flaws that are really just a, a me above we, I want to I just say this because it's such a family thing to do that the, the word used here for these guys and their age is one that shows that they are either young men, teenagers, or slightly younger than that. This family is destroyed because of a moment that takes place while these guys are still immature young people. And when I think about families, this is especially true of siblings, so many families are not what they could be because of something that happened when somebody was a teenager or 20 years old and the other person hasn't let it go yet. Isn't that true? It's like, wow, are we holding on to the immature actions of, of the past? Like, hey, that one time when we were 15 years old, you did that one thing and I've never let it go. And it's easy to see in this story, and we'll look at this story, the continuation of the story again next week, that this is stupid. But in our own lives, it doesn't feel stupid, does it? It's like, well, yeah, obviously you shouldn't hold the sins of a person's, you know, teenage years over them, but you, you, they did it, you know, and so I'm going to hold it over them because it feels right to hold, them, hold it over them. And man, your family can't be what it's supposed to be if you're going to hold uh, the sins of yesterday, especially the sins of the teenage years, over another person. I mean, these guys are like, I mean, like 14 to 20. And really the rest of their lives in some ways, even though they have a brief moment of forgiveness, I'll let you know that now, but even though there's a brief moment of forgiveness, they can't ever really be together anymore because they never forget, I don't think, about what happens here. Now, Esau walks in. This is a famous story. If you've been around the church, you know this story. But there's a couple of interesting things that are really important. He walks in. He's famished. Uh, that word for famished is forceful in Hebrew. It's moved to the front of the sentence. So this guy's really, really hungry. And he walks in, and, and I want to point out that Jacob is ready to go here. He is ready for what is about to take place, it, it seems. But, but the setting is one that, that's difficult and we don't know where this takes place but this family was not a poor family it wasn't like they had food around and and so it may be and this helps the story just make so much more sense to me that they're actually out at a shepherding camp Jacob is a shepherd and Esau goes out to hunt and and so now they're not by home they're not where they have their 
stockpile of food. They're not around servants that can cook for Esau, that have food ready to go. They're out kind of in the middle of nowhere, some people think. And this makes more sense to me because Esau comes in there and he's thinking, I didn't catch any food and now I don't have any food. And this is a big problem. I'm going to die. Now, he says he's going to die. He makes kind of a logical point. Like, my birthright doesn't matter to me if I'm dead. So, uh, so no big deal there, you know. So you can have it because otherwise I'm dead. But sure seems like it's an exaggeration. If you're going to die from hunger, you probably don't come pouncing into the shepherd camp, right? I mean, you probably can find somebody else. And either way, whether he's exaggerating or not, this, this one phrase would have just infuriated the first readers of this book. And it's this one. What good is my birthright to me? The birthright was a big deal, and I'm going to explain what it was in a second, to Jewish people, Jewish people who would have read this book first. And, and so the writer writes this in a way that lets us know that, that Esau, while he gets one pulled over on him, it seems like he's the victim. He is not a victim in this story as much as he is a guy who puts me over we because of his flippancy at the end of it, it's going to say that he despised his birthright. And despised sounds like, wow, he was angry that this situation took place. But that doesn't seem to be what the story is actually telling us. It seems to be saying that Esau sold his birthright because he despised it. And the word despised means something along the lines of undervalue. He undervalued this right that was his and his family. He was flippant about it. The net Bible translated as despised or despicable or contempt or breaking or this, though. Ignore or reject or no importance or to make light of or to throw away. I think what it's getting at is that Esau loses his birthright because Esau treats his birthright like we treat pennies. Eh. It's just a penny. I'm not going to stop to pick it up. It's just a penny. Give me some of that stew. At the end of this kind of section with Esau, it says that he, just five verbs right in a row. Boom, 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 boom. He ate, he drank, he got up, he left, and he despised. And it's almost like the author is saying, eating, drinking, getting up, and leaving were about the same to Esau is how he felt about this birthright that was his because he had been born first and it was his because his dad would give him more. Now, the Edomites, this is kind of a preview of what happens. The Edomites, his family line becomes this nation and they are known for being a lusty, passionate people who just respond to the moment but don't really care about the future. That's Esau. And I think that we may not see it this way, but it ultimately comes down to this. Esau puts me above we. He didn't think about family honor. He didn't think about the respect that he should show his dad. He didn't think about what this would do to the family. You know what he thought about? Stew. That's what he thought about. I get this way, so I kind of get him. But, I mean, he's just hungry. Like, yeah, sure, you can have my baby. I just need to eat, you know? I mean, uh, here, here's my car. Just give me some of that food. That's how I sometimes get. Uh, but I would not actually say, here's my baby, right? And Esau actually says, here's something that will hurt my family, that will cause a problem in my family. I don't care about it enough. 
I'm going to put me above we. This is how I see this played out. This is very real. We don't think of flippancy as that, but it's very real. I think about this. People who don't do the right thing for their families, because actually, as Brandon mentioned, we didn't plan this, but because they're so wrapped up in sports, and they want that break from life and the election and all the bad things that are going on. And so instead of spending time with their children, they sit in front of a TV set and watch the next game for their favorite team. They're flippant about the importance of their families. And it's just simply me above we. Or some people, it's, and this is, you see this in some younger parents who obviously weren't ready to have a child. And I mentioned earlier that some people, when they have a child, it's the first time in their lives where they don't put me above we. But other people, it just magnifies me above we because they're, it's like, well, I have a kid, but I'm going to go out partying all the time anyway. I'm going to be flippant about my relationship with this child and the importance that I have on their lives and how much value I should give them. Really, it's about saying, do you value you or do you value your family? And a lot of people say, well, I value me and the fun that I'm having. And so my family will be secondary. Some people just have hobbies that it's like, man, you're just all the time focused on your hobbies. Well, meanwhile, your family is suffering because of what you are doing. Other people, it's fitness. It's like, well, I'm just going to be in the best shape and work out all the time, and I'm going to be awesome, and my abs are going to be great, and I might know my kids when they're older, but I'm going to look good now. Some people are just wrapped up in television and movies, and it's like, man, alive. I say this all the time in sermons because it is so staggering to me. When I'm walking around my neighborhood, everybody's watching TV. I don't look in their windows. I see in their windows. I want to point that out every time. I see in their windows, and everybody is watching TV, and I can't help but think that some of them might have children that maybe they should talk to. It's because they're flipping about the value and the importance of their families and they're putting themselves above something above their families. Video games destroy families sometimes. Now, this isn't just a kid thing anymore. This is an adult thing too. Sometimes people become so wrapped up in their video games and playing their video games that their families become secondary and all it is is me above we. This makes me feel good. This is fun. You don't matter enough to me, family. You don't matter enough to me. I'm going to do what I want. And then this is like the most famous, and this used to be more common, I think, but now, uh, you know, in my generation, we're a bunch of slackers, but some people used to just value their jobs above their families. It was all about getting the next promotion. It was all about making money. It was all about moving up the corporate ladder. And so, you know, kind of the famous cliche one is, so I don't know my kids anymore because the job has become my thing. And we no longer matters. And we look at Esau and we go, well, the guy was just hungry. Man, but Esau was putting me above we. I want that stew more than I want my family to be all that God wanted it to be. And I just want to say, I just want to say, Esau's name means red. Keep that in your heads. It'll come back to it in a second. One author said about Jacob that Jacob is the calculating opportunist who cheats the impulsive Esau in his weakened state. Now, if you come back next week and you should, Jacob is going to become like rich and he's going to be the guy. And it's, I mean, this is the family line. This is a big deal. So it would be easy to go, well, you know, the ends justify the means in this situation. 
But man alive, when you read what God has to say about the things that Jacob does in this story later, because they don't have the Old Testament the way we do now, but it's not things that God likes. You can read about his violation of honest trade in Leviticus 25, 14, and 17, and and you can see how what he does here is a mark of wickedness in Psalms 147, 7. In fact, there's a bunch of weird word plays in this uh, passage of scripture, and uh, one of them I'm going to allude to, red, 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 keep that in your head. Ooh, rhyme. All right, but... But one of them is this, that the word for cooking that's used here, that he's cooking this stew, is very similar to the word hunter. And so it's almost as if the author is saying that the, the cook is the hunter uh, of the hunter, Esau. Now, here's, here's the other part. Let me get back to this now. What, what is this birthright? And the birthright is not for blessings and for you know being healthy and prosperous and all that. This is just, just a money thing. I mean, we, we're like, well, he wanted the blessings and he wanted to be the great family line, and that's kind of admirable right here. No, this is just a money thing. And so the way that it worked and, and what we think this birthright was is that let's pretend that you had uh, 10 kids, okay? A man had 10 kids, then his inheritance would be split 11 ways and the oldest son would get two of those. Now that might be like 50 bucks depending on your dad. But when you have a rich dad and he only has two kids, then getting two thirds of that pot becomes a really big deal. And Jacob was jealous. His brother, from the time that they came out of the womb, was going to get a third more of the inheritance that, than he was. He wanted what wasn't his, and he apparently was looking for an opportunity to take what was his brother's. And the opportunity presents itself when Esau comes in hungry. This is me above we. It's more obvious, right? I mean, he wants what is his brother's, And he's like, you can die, or you can give me that inheritance. This is not companionship. This is not help. This is not what God designed family to be. This is me above we. And it leads to such an incredible conflict that they have to separate. They have to go to different cities, and they will never fully reconcile. And so in this story, red because of Esau and red because of the stew reminds us, red reminds us of both the jealousy and the flippancy. It reminds us of me above we. As a stroke of luck, in our society today, red reminds us of what? Stop. And a lot of other things. Evil. But stop. Stop. Reminds us to stop. And so for us, and we're going to give you red cards when you walk out of here today. Reminds us of red cards in soccer, in fact, which means you stop now. You're leaving. Uh, But we need to stop putting me above we if we want to remove conflict in our family. Now, you go, well, how? How do I stop putting me above we? 
You might go, what is the opposite of me above we? And I want to remind you one more time that this story is about God fulfilling his promises. From the very beginning of Jacob's life, it was said, look, you are going to rule over your brother. And not only that, but what we find, it's so fascinating, is that Jacob doesn't become rich because he puts me over we. God fulfills his promise in a different way in the story we actually looked at last week. He goes, he meets a wife, he he has a father-in-law that's terrible, he tends his father-in-law's sheep, no matter what he does, he's blessed. This isn't about how he gets rich. But he thinks he gets rich by putting me above we. This story is about God being faithful to his promises and also how in the midst of God being faithful to his promises, we can still mess things up in our families if we place me above we. And so again, we need to stop placing me above we. Um, But you go, okay, well, the opposite of me above we is that I would place... I would place we above me, right? But I don't think that's what this story teaches. I don't think this story teaches us that the opposite of me above we is we above me. I think this is what it teaches us. It's God above us. I think that what this story reminds and teaches and shows us is that God was going to fulfill his promises anyway. And if these people would have just said, we're going to do what God wants us to do, then they would have been okay anyway. Now, we go, wait, if I don't put me above we, then I'm going to get run over in this family. Then things will go badly for me. Then, then who's going to look out for me because it's not going to be we? You know, I mean, who's going to look out for me? And the story says, well, God is looking out for you. And so put him above your family and live for him in your family and do what he wants in your family, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to benefit you. I think that the opposite of me above we is placing God above us. And what I think is that when we place me above we, it leads to conflict in our families. But when we place God over us, it leads to peace in our families. Now look, I understand that this us thing is difficult. Because even if you're placing God over you, it doesn't mean that everybody else is going to get on board. You know that. And so therefore, there will still be conflict. But you can place God over you. And I believe you can lessen the conflict and you can be less responsible for the conflict. And if you're the leader of your family, then you can do your best to make sure that God stays above us. And we don't just do what makes sense or what seems easy or what seems best for me, but we do what's best for God because we've placed him over our lives. And I think there's just a few things that are really important. The first, you got to become a Christian. You do. You have to become a Christian. You will never have a conflict-free home if you are not a person who has given your life to Jesus. It's impossible. It's impossible. Because you're not a person who trusts that anybody's looking out for me. And so even if you go, well, I'm going to put we above me, it's not going to work. Because eventually you'll be scared. You might not call it fear, but you're going to be scared and it's going to lead to anger because when people get scared, they get angry and, they, and it's going to lead to conflict because you're like, somebody has to look out for me. But when you're a Christian, you go, well, I can put God above us and I can trust him for the results. 
I mean, we believe that to be a Christian, this is what being a Christian is, that, that we go, hey, God, I understand that I'm a sinner and that you came and you died for my sins in the person of Jesus and that you rose again and you got out of the grave. And if we believe that and we give our lives to that person that did that for us, Jesus, then it reminds us that we can put God above us because he is powerful and he is loving. He is a God that cared enough to come and he is a God that is powerful enough to get out of the grave. But also, listen to this. If you're already a Christian, you have to trust God. I think what leads to our conflicts is that we put me above we because we don't think God's going to come through. It's like, well... I have some needs, I have some wants, I have some hopes, I have some desires. And if I don't put me above we, then I might not get those things. And if I let that person in my family win, then how does that make me look? And if I let them say that and I don't get the last word in and just go, well, yeah, but, uh, but, you know, and I don't get that last word in, then I'm not the winner and... But if you believe in Jesus and that he came to save you and you put God over us, then you know, you should know that you can trust God to give you the things that you need. I mean, the Bible says God will work out everything for, those, for the good of those who love him. The Bible says that God will meet our needs. The Bible says that Jesus will be with us always and that the Holy Spirit has come upon our lives. And so we don't need to put ourselves over our families. Because God is over us in a protective, loving, good way, too. And then it also means this, like, do what God wants you to do. If you're placing God over us, then yeah, it means become a Christian. Yeah, it means trust God like he's over us in a protective way. But it also means that he's over us in a kingly way, that he is our king, he is our Lord, and we should do what he wants us to do. And I promise you this, that if you do what God wants you to do, then conflict is going to be lessened in your family. And we go, well, yeah, God's over me. I'm a Christian and I'll trust him. But man alive, sometimes I'm just going to do what I want to do. And when they bother me, I'm just going to talk behind their backs and say the mean thing. When they bother me, I'll just, I'll just, you know, yell at them. Or when they bother me, then I'll just lie to them so that I don't have to deal with them. And, and placing God over us is about saying, I'm not going to do what's easy. I'm not going to do what even seems or feels right to me. I'm going to do what's actually right. I'm going to do the thing that God wants me to do. And the cool part is green reminds us of go. And I think that we need to stop placing me over we and we need to start to place God over us. I'm reminded of the game Red Light, Green Light. I wonder why I'm reminded of that. But uh, it's the game where you start on a basketball floor or whatever, and there's a guy at the end, and you run until they yell out red light, and then you have to freeze. And, and then they say green light, and you go, and red light, and they go. And uh, I think that sometimes... We're running on stop when it comes to conflict in our families. We're like, I'm just going to go, 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 me above we. And God's like, wait a minute. Stop putting me, me above we. And start to put me, uh, God, above us. And when you do that, this is, I really believe this. I really believe this. That when you place God above us, uh, then the conflict in your family is going to lessen. 
When you place me above we, there will be conflict in your family. And when you place God above us, there will be peace in your family. Will you, will you pray with me? Lord, I know that every one of us that are here today, God, um, uh, are affected in some way by family conflict, Lord. I mean, there's just no way around that in this life. It's, it's impossible, God, for us to, to be any part of a family and not have dissension, some arguing, and some bitterness, and some jealousy, and uh, some complacency when there ought not be, and some fighting, Lord. But God, so often, at least in our current culture, we accept mass amounts of conflict as normal and, and I think as the only way and, and I think God sometimes is even like kind of good. Like we just almost like embrace the conflict and, and, and keep engaging the conflict and we keep putting me above we even though it leads to more and more fighting and more and more stress and more and more anger and uh, just more and more of what we don't really want if we were to pause and think about it for a second. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that for all of us who are here and everybody who will listen to this sermon online too, God, um, that we would put you above us. Lord, I pray that people would give their lives to you if they're not Christians. I know, oh man, you know I know, God, that the conflict in my family would be so much worse if I wasn't a Christian. Uh, the conflict in my marriage would be worse. The conflict with every, all of my family, every one of them, God, uh, would be way worse. But because I have you in my life, Lord, I, I, as I said last week, I can just sense you moving when I'm about to be an idiot, Lord. I don't always listen, but at least I can sense you moving. And Lord, I pray for all of us who are Christians already, and I pray, God, that we would look to you for our provision and our protection and our comfort and we wouldn't feel a need at all, God, at all to place ourselves above others because you are above us and you are taking care of us and God, I pray we would never trust ourselves more than we would trust you, Lord. And God, I finally pray, I also pray that you would just cause us to be obedient to you and when we want to be jerks help us not to be jerks and we want to talk behind somebody's back help us not to talk behind somebody's back and we want to try to rob our sibling of something that they have and we want I pray that we wouldn't Lord um, because you've called us to these things and if we're Christians then, then we are your followers and we have seen that even though you were despised rejected tortured and crucified you still responded in a way that honored your father and I pray that we would follow suit Lord not putting me above we but you above us Lord help us God because this is hard this is hard and it's not normal God but I don't think any of us who are Christians are shooting for normal. So I pray we'd be abnormal because we would have you at the head of our families, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.